Today's episode is brought to you by Slater's 5050 and Tua T Fitness. Everything sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer? I'm on vacation. How about you? (laughs) And welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. Today we're talking about the Die Hard edition, and we are talking about A Good Day to Die Hard, the 2013 movie by John Moore. My name is Michael Schantz. I'm of the How Dare You Awards. Tom Stewart is here. Talk to me, Tom. Newark. Now, you know what? This might not be a good movie and far from the best Die Hard, but that line is utter perfection. (laughs) I'll give it to you. And that's it. (laughs) Yeah, that's the end of the podcast. If you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. And that's probably the only nice thing we have to say. Uh, All right. A 2013 movie... You know, A Good Day to Die Hard had a budget of $92 million, only made $67.3 million in the USA. But Tom, worldwide, $304.6 million. Once again, mm. man, the world is coming through for the Die Hard franchise. This movie was a success based solely on uh, what other countries had to say. Uh, well, I mean, this one seems way more targeted at the international market than previous Die Hard, so that, for, at least for this movie, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, for sure. Here in the USA, it was the 54th highest grossing movie in 2013. You know, all the other movies, I think, uh, you know, the lowest was 16th for Live Free or Die Hard. The other, the other sequels were 7th highest grossing in the USA. So let's get into it. Um, This movie is directed by John Moore, who is, you know, not like a brand new director or anything. He directed the Omen remake, Max Payne, Flight of the Intruder, Behind Enemy Lines. Yeah. Do you feel a pattern developing here? So does it (laughs) surprise you that remakes? Yeah, right. Yeah. All right. We both agree that this is, uh, we rank this movie last in in the series for the sequels, correct? Correct. And, 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 a, and a last that wouldn't even make it on the same page of a Word document as the other movies. Right. So where does this movie go so horribly wrong? I mean, here's the funny thing, Tom. And we talked about this in the other podcast. Die Hard 2 is based on a novel <laughs> called 88 Minutes. Die Hard 3 is based on an original screenplay called Simon Says that they just made for the purposes of Die Hard. Same with Live Free or Die Hard. Mm. This movie was specifically written for the Die Hard (laughs) franchise, (laughs) thinking of John McClane, and yet we go off the rails. And for me, it's almost a complete failure. What went wrong? I am. I mean, let's start with what you said. Maybe you know they stumbled upon exactly the right formula. You start. You you find a story and you diehardify it. Maybe that's how you. That's just how you do it. 
Right. That's the way to do it right. For it to work. Uh, then you've got, you know, you've got a recognizable franchise plus a really strong um, original story. To me, oh, well, you know, it. i tell you something I did like uh, up up top about this movie. All right. The, cred- the opening credits are really good. All right. They're beautiful. These kind of soul bass psycho swipes across the screen. It kind of it felt kind of classy. I felt like I was sitting set for a classy movie. Once, well, it was only when I we sort of see John McClane again that I had the sense that something was terribly, terribly wrong. Well, what are you referring his, to? Are you his refer- first his first appearance? As the scene went on, I'm, I was like, "This is so humorless, so drab." Right. So sad. Yeah. This is a sad movie. John McClane is sad throughout this movie. Now, we've talked about previous sequels, whether it's the actors who are sad and they're shooting around that. Uh-huh. Roy Scheider enjoys Jaws 2, Richard Dreyfuss in, in, another, in another stakeout. I think something similar might be going on here where John McClane wasn't supposed to be as sad, so they wrote in this idea about his son is going to get executed by the Russians, and that's why he's sad. Right. <laughs> but you, I didn't, there is, and, and it's kind of, it's slow, it's maudlin, it's melancholy, and that's the beginning of the movie. That's the first time we see... The first time we see Johnny's talking about how... And, you know, I think it's a great choice to focus on John McClane Jr. in this movie. That is like the untapped potential of where we can go with the family dynamic. Right. That's fine. So I have a, no issues with I, that. I, it's funny you say that because, yes, you're right. It's the only place for the story to go. Yeah. Because of what happens in Live Free or Die Hard, you have to, you know... You have to assume the the relationship is repaired with the daughter, and she's even in the beginning of this movie, so it right. feels and it like was it's nice repaired. To see them back together. So I, there's I like nowhere that. for that to go, and the son is the only place to go. And yet, for some reason, that whole angle of this falls flat for me. Definitely, it doesn't work. And you know, I, I just I just don't remember in previous diehards and take them taking so much time for these moments of respite that immediately dial down the pace these kind of moments between John and John and John right <laughs> the, let's call them the John and Johns <laughs> well he does call and, his son and Jack it's like everything just stops and diehards for whatever else you want to say about them they don't stop like this ever right uh, and we have several of these moments scattered throughout the film, and you see them coming a mile off, where they're gonna they're gonna talk about their strained relationship, and they're gonna eventually tell each other that they they forgive each other and love each other. And it takes a long time, and it's very sad, and there's nothing humorous or interesting happening, right? And I think that to me that is like that's the thing I noticed overall, especially having watched the other three sequels in advance of this, I'm like, that is that is something that is such a misjudgment of what this franchise is about. Well, so let me ask you this, because speaking to that, we've we've spoken, you know, in the other episodes, uh, especially in the sequels, the idea of the brawn versus brain. Yes. 
and that's sort of the formula. Right. And here you don't have that. You have brawn versus brawn, which doesn't really work. But on top of that, these moments where they seem to go for humor, for me, also led to this character that we've been with now for, you know, almost 30 years. Right. Uh, it it starts falling into, like, toxic masculinity hmm. in a way that really bothered me in this movie, you know? This idea where John, you know, John McClane leans over when they get the guy out of jail and he sees his daughter and not all the plot nonsense has been revealed yet and he's hugging his daughter and he leans over to his son and he goes, that's a tender moment. Hmm. And then he says, you want a hug? We're not really a hugging family. Damn straight. You know, this idea that, like, you can't be affectionate towards your son, you know? I don't know. It just didn't sit well with me. And it's not the John McClane that I like. Yeah, he's definitely... Yes, he's definitely now Bruce Willis, human walnut. Yeah. He's he's passed over into Mr. Peanut now. <laughs> Completely. But did you have? Yeah, no, I, I, you know what? That is not anything that occurred to me. But you're, you're absolutely right. I have a bunch of other things I don't like about this movie. Right. I mean, and that, and I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk about. We might have to just start at the right beginning the, and just, you know, the humor in general falls flat, and it's not like the movie isn't trying to kind of give Willis things to work with. I mean that that was my it's preconception not doing it was well, that though. I mean really my, my 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 preconception was that like like it's going to be unfunny and they're not going to give Willis jokes or one-liners or comic situations. They're in there. It's just his comic timing is so off. Yeah. You you don't even know it's a comedy scene. Well, and also the idea because really in my mind, th- this movie only has one joke. Oh, yeah. And the joke is, I'm on vacation. Which is not true. Which is not true, exactly. It's not <laughs> true. That's a lie. You're not on vacation. Just because you're in another country doesn't mean you're on vacation. You're trying to save your son. How untrue that is. Right, okay. If I were to say, the, say like, it's not just, he's not on vacation. The reason he is there is to stop his son being executed by the Russian government. Right. Now that, I I don't know, synonyms, antonyms, I don't think you can get further away from a definition of a vacation than that. It's, a, yeah, it's so far removed that you can't even possibly fathom why this <laughs> sentence enters his brain, much less why he would give voice to the thought. And he does it over and... Because, I mean, in the other, he has... That's the thing. It's about everything being a little bit off. In the other movies, yes, he has one-liners. Yes, he talks to himself. But he does not say the same thing repeatedly over and over in exactly the same way. Yeah, exactly. You know? He has a range of jokes. And they give him that Russian taxi driver. And you're like, oh, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. Double act coming. We got, right we got the Marvin. That guy, that, that taxi driver is doing all the work in that scene. Oh, he's the heavy lifter for sure. Bruce Willis is asleep. Is <laughs> 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 medically asleep in that scene. <laughs> he was induced into a coma in the back seat while this cab driver, the actor, is working his ass off. 
one one of the things I think is kind of interesting because uh, for a, a lot of franchises, don't get to the fifth movie. Right. It's it's like a quite a rarity. So I'm interested. This immediately made me think of all the other f- number fives. Oh, okay. In every other series, when I was watching this, I'm thinking this movie has exactly the same problem as Rambo: Last Blood, Rocky Five. It's like they forget what the basic in- ingredients of the movie are. The basic ingredients that make the series work in the first place. Until three quarters into the movie and then they have to deliver so quickly that it's absurd. And so let me ask you this. Was it a mistake to take it out of the USA at all? Should we not be in Russia? Is that part of the formula? I can I can conceive of a universe in which that definitely works because the, the we've seen the sequels have gradually been opening up like the original movie is in one building in LA right. then we go to the east coast and then we go to well, we go to uh, the know, airport like, oh, we were in, then we're in an airport then we're in a city yeah. then we're in a few different cities um so so really this should have gone to outer space they should have done they should have done McLean in space <laughs> they might as well have done but um, again, it's not a. It's in and of itself, it is not a bad choice. I think the problem. I think the problem is more about genre. They try and tie this movie to a, a genre which the franchise mm-hmm. is just not doesn't sit right with. It's Die Hard can be adapted into many things, but I don't think it can be adapted into an espionage thriller. Yeah, it's ill-equipped for that. And I think that's. And it's interesting, like, I started to watch the movie, and, you know, this is only seven years ago, but I'd completely forgotten about what else was happening in 2013 movie-wise that would make them want to make a movie like this, right. which is the, the, the Bourne films are the biggest movies in the world. The Daniel Craig James right. Bond movies are the, the highest-grossing Bond movies ever. Of course, you know, you're going to think this is a good idea at that moment sure so the, uh, and that you know that that explains it right yeah i mean it also explains why the style of this movie is so incongruous from anything we've seen before from anything we've seen before looks, it, it, it's that motion motion sickness style that we see in the bond film the the, right. the bond um, movies but they make it work in the bond movies yeah and here it doesn't because, work because that, that's an espionage film yeah there you go <laughs> So one thing, you know, that you could say about all the movies, all the movies have a moment where you think to yourself, okay, well, McLean would be dead. (laughs) You're right, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's not quite on par. Like, when he kills the helicopter in Live Free or Die Hard, like, that car looks like it's traveling 90 miles per hour. He leaps out of the car about 20 feet before slamming into another car in a roll, and I just think, oh, he's dead. But for some reason, I forgive it in the other movies, and I don't hear. With this initial car chase, he's had two car crashes where I oh. think he's dead. Right. And I, I'm actually I'm I, really just playing devil's advocate here. But one of the, the few moments I liked in the movie was when they flipped that on its head and, and I think, and I'm going to say overall, I think the last quarter of the movie gives me some of that diehard goodness that I want. It's just too late. It's just too little, too late. 
Uh-huh. Um, when they plunge into the the water from I don't know a, a ridiculous height from above, yes. And there's a moment where John Junior thinks his dad has died, and he it's just a camera trick. Like he turns around, and Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis, not John McClane, is standing there, <laughs> like. Just going, hi, yeah, I'm here. Like I got Yeah, not only is he not only is he not dead, but he got himself out of the pool and just I suppose chose to not respond to the four <laughs> calls of dad yes. before that. But I like you that know? because at least it's it's sort of it's it's a it's a nod to some of the comedy in the series that works. But yes, I mean that is a very rare example. Most of the time it is just forgetting physics and you know that kind of thing thing. and i i mean as soon as you said you know the point at which john mcclain dies i mean i immediately thought of the ejector seat in die hard to die harder right but those grenades take a long time to explode (laughs) do you know you know what like i'm thinking i'm thinking about okay well so what's different about that it's fun yeah it's right. like you you get to see his face going crazy, and he goes up and, and he goes down. It's like there's something in there's something entertaining, spectacular about it. When it happens here, it's just like an uh, you know an oversight. It's like a scene they probably cut. There is an extended cut of this movie, which I will never see. <laughs> that's, that might that might resolve all these problems for you. I doubt it. I doubt it as you well. You know, you float you floated that story for Superman 4. I don't think another hour is going to save any of these movies. There was a major red flag when I saw that this was half an hour shorter than the other Die Hard movies. That is a major red flag. Yeah, when you see a Die Hard movie and it's 90 minutes, you go, oh, shit. <laughs> and We're that should, trouble. because like in any other, that's what's great about watching sequels, uh, exclusively as we're doing right is that in any other movie you'd be like oh great 90 minutes so this movie's probably not going to be going to outstay its welcome when you see that in like a three <laughs> and a four in the series you're like oh no they shit oh, the they, bed they shit the bed <laughs> <laughs> all right we are just getting started with a good day to die hard ladies and gentlemen stick with us we'll be right back and uh, we'll continue our chat right after this Look, people, we're living in strange times. We know that, don't we? Of course we do. People don't even know what to do with themselves. We're getting stir-crazy. Well, get outside and get yourself some great food, I say. You need to go to Slater's 5050 and Point Loma's Liberty Station. It's time to treat yourself to booze, to beer, to burgers, and more. They have their full menu, people. Their full menu, I say. How many restaurants do you know that are doing that? Most places are doing a quarter of their menu, probably. Some might be doing a half. Maybe a few have got three quarters of a menu. But Slater's 5050 has their full menu, including their signature 5050 patty. It's half ground beef. It's half ground bacon. It's 100% delicious. What more could you possibly ask? Worried about social distancing? Well, it is in place, people. Tables are separated, and the staff will always be seen wearing masks. You're out of excuses. Get off your keister and come on down to Liberty Station's own Slater's 5050. 
indoor dining available, outdoor dining available. Bring the family, bring your dog, come enjoy the normal again. Good day to you. I said good day. And we're back. We're here talking about A Good Day to Die Hard. The titles just get longer and longer. <laughs> uh, Tom, clearly, this is, uh, you know, we're giving some shit to this Die Hard. This is, we're talking about everything that doesn't work. Yeah. You've mentioned a couple things you think work. Like, are there, is there anything on a big scale that you like about this movie? Um... Because I'm hard pressed to think of anything myself. I think, I think the last quarter works okay. I think they find. Do you mean when they get to uh, Chernobyl? You know, I think, I think that this is maybe a big problem of movies of this period that, um, it was very unfashionable in this moment to make movies that were kind of light-hearted action movies. Right. Like the era of Daniel Craig's Bond films, the Bourne films, they were kind of humorless. And I think in order to fit into that mold, the the movie's trying to is working against what makes a good Die Hard, which is this constant stream of comedy. Of course, when you do get these moments of comedy, Bruce Willis um, massacres them. But yeah. uh, in the last quarter of the movie, I, I, it's like, oh, this is kind of what it it could have it could have always been. You know, we we get a. Um, you know, at its, the problem is, I think, at its best, the the <laughs> the part of the Die Hard franchise it resembles is the last half of Die Hard with a Vengeance. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of they're called the movie that they're calling back. They're calling back to the worst part, to the least successful part of any of the other sequels. The least successful part of what is, to at least in my opinion, overall the least successful of the Die Hard movies. Um, there's lots of double crossing and triple crossing, and and I think that they are sort of they are doing that thing, and I, I don't know why f- number five in the series has to do this of like, okay, let's do all the Die Hard things in the last twenty minutes. Yeah. Uh, so you get well, Bruce Willis in the vest. You get a bunch of explosions. You get some nice uh, action stuff. The 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 uh, the rapport is a little better. The chemistry is a little. It kind of improves. You you have like sardonic comedy offsetting things. Um, but the chemistry with his son does seem to not pick up until the end. Yeah. Um, but so I'd say you know as a consistent section of the movie, I don't. It, it kind of reveals itself as a diehard. Uh, you know, the, the first three quarters of the movie were a disguise that it then unmasks itself. And it's like, oh, okay, so we're, we're, we're at now what we should have started out to be. But, I mean, that is not an enjoyable viewing experience. No. To have to I wait mean, the... that long to get that tiny little uh, morsel of, Sliver, of, yeah. of what you really want. Well, there's just... Um, there's so, so many yeah, things no, I that mean, fall like, flat. I like the choices of the John, of John McClane Jr. I like the opening credits. Um, I wish I could say that, like, I would have liked this as a different kind of movie. But I don't like the way this is filmed at all. No, yeah, me either. I, it's nauseating. The colors, uh, the go... It's uh, got like a con- muted... color contrast are just horrible. yeah. So I don't even like it as a regular uh, gritty thriller. 
Right. Um, so I don't, me... sadly don't have much to say about it except that it gets better before it gets much much worse. <laughs> I think it's the, the the worst the worst ending in terms of a final scene of the uh, of the franchise for sure. Which ending are we talking about? The action ending or the? No, that's pretty good. The um, last second ending. The the scene done in mime for some reason. Right. Okay. Of yeah. The family reuniting, which is kind of the moment I was really looking forward to. I was. Yeah. It was a exactly. Big moment I, in the franchise. Yeah, I'm like looking forward to this moment, and it just kind of like everything else in this movie falls flat. You know. Yeah. There's so many things that just kind of. I don't know. They, it just it just needles me in this movie. You know, like they uh, you you have this this huge car chase. Uh, John McClane should be dead twice. The bad guys should definitely be dead, even if they're in this indestructible hulk of whatever it is they're driving. Yeah, because uh, they go over a rail. And, you know, I mean, it's like that crash is ridiculous. And then they escape, but get found again. And there's this moment where John McClane, using his superpowers, can like just deduce that uh, you know bad baddies are about to come into the room. So he picks up an an M60, I think, is what it looks like, mm-hmm. and he just starts shooting guys dead while screaming about being on vacation. Mm-hmm. But what bothers me the most is like no bad guy takes cover. They just keep walking into the room for him to shoot, like one you know after another. I mean, it just feels Keystone Cops, but with death and violence. Yeah, and the 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 the, the frame one. I think another big problem in the movie is like the frame of reference. You mentioned Key, Keystone Cops. I don't think that was an intended reference, but even the kind of intended references in the movies, like there's a little flavor of Cronenberg's Eastern Promises, which is a pretty big kind of Russian-based movie right. a few years before. There's a little bit of Crystal Skull, Last Crusade, and the way that they're tied together, and the fact it's like son and father. And that's not a movie you want to emulate. Neither, really, are ones you want want to emulate. Well, I, I, and I thought it's like, well, well, I quite enjoyed Last Crusade, so why isn't this working for me? Because I knew Harrison Ford before this movie started as Indiana Jones. We've never met John Jr. before. We right. don't. This is not like what would happen if these two guys to get together. It's like first tell me who this guy is, and then I'll let you know whether they'll be a good pairing. <laughs> there's there's a plot line from the Living Daylights of all things. I mean, it's it's like it, it's so it's so strange. What it's it's almost like it's trying to pull from everything but a Die Hard. Yeah, and and for me the espionage stuff like. Every single moment we're talking about these Russians and the key and one guy, you know, pitted against another guy, like two words just keep rolling through my head. And it's who cares? Yeah. Like they don't make you care about anybody for a single second. And this is one place where I think this movie fails greatly. Like you take a look at Die Hard 2 and we've talked about it, you know. How many great characters are in Die Hard right. 2? Everybody's interesting. You want to know a little bit more about all of them. You you know, you're fine to share screen time with those characters. And there aren't any other really interesting characters 
in this movie. Even his own son isn't really that interesting. No, he's, he's, he's like a, a but he's like a, a. It made me grateful that in Live Free or Die Hard, they didn't turn Lucy into a mini John McClane. Right. Yeah. Because that's totally what they do here. Except he seems a little hapless. Like he doesn't have all the answers. You know, he's supposed to be a super spy, and yet he keeps making mistakes. And then when his father, the cop, says, "So what's next?" he goes, "I don't know." Mm. <laughs> you know. I think it almost to me feels like that. There's a writer on this movie who was trying to use lines of dialogue in the script as a cry for help. Like he was, well, he was like wrestle. Whoever this was was having creative control wrestled out of his hands, and he just kept putting lines in that make the viewer question what you're seeing. Like the <laughs> the scene when John McClane finds out that his son is in the CIA, he's sort of saying, "Oh, 007, spy shit." It's like that's what I'm thinking. Why are we doing this? Right? Yeah. Why are we in a spy movie? Then later on. I can't remember who it is says it, but it says, are we really going to the, are we really going to Chernobyl? And I was sort of like, that's what I'm thinking. And right. clearly the screenwriters are asking themselves the same question. Are we really doing this? Right. They're asking themselves enough to make characters ask the questions that the audience is saying to themselves. Yes. This is not a recipe for success. So I'm glad you brought up the writer because I was curious and I looked him up. Well, everything except his name. Sorry, but he—he—he <laughs> he, he would probably make that choice anyway to remain nameless. Yeah. The person who wrote this also wrote Swordfish, the A Team movie, and X Men Origins Wolverine. Oh well, that is quite a—that is quite a resume. Does that does that say a lot? Does that explain it? To some extent, yeah, yeah. It does, but it does feel like it feel it feels like. You know, there's a lot of different... It doesn't feel like it's one writer. Is it just one writer, officially? I think so. I'd have to I'd have to double-check, but I think it was just one. It feels, like it, it feels like they were going for a very serious movie, and then, weirdly, once they get to Chernobyl, everything lightens up. <laughs> right, I know. Which is, you know, after, after sort of making a big deal... Uh, I kind of liked, I kind of liked, you know, there was some continuity with Live or Die Hard in that real historical events, WMDs, Chernobyl, were driving the story. Uh-huh. I kind of liked that. Um, but then they, they undermine that by having them make a joke about radiation sickness and Bruce Willis being bald, which is sort of like... So it's all a joke. Yeah, it's it, and it felt like it felt like the whole turn towards Chernobyl was to get to that joke. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Um especially since you know HBO's made a pretty a pretty kind of like uh, epic miniseries grim right. you know like complex history of this. It it does kind of pale in comparison. Um I also I mean, you know, the it's such a it was such a strange choice to go to Russia, but when you get to Russia, to not be very clear what you think of Russia politically. Right. Instead, you have like Bruce Willis uh, stopping a car, and the guy getting out and speaking to him in Russian, and he just punches him <laughs> and says, "I don't understand what you're saying." You know, I mean, there's your, to- there's this your is toxic ugly masculinity. American. As- 
Yeah, yeah, that's the toxic masculinity. You're the ugly American, as ugly as you can get. Um, you know, it all kind of speaks to like a world I just don't want any part of. Do you know frankly. what could have redeemed that scene? If he punches the guy speaking Russian and then behind him we hear uh, Samuel Jackson's voice saying, Say up to the same old tricks, huh, McLean? <laughs> and he's been sent there too. Right. I see you're still an asshole. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's very strange. I, I, I mean, there is... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, given that they, they're very... Because I was sort of like, oh, so they're flirting with the idea of it being a spy movie. And then they say in the dialogue, we're now in a spy movie. Uh -huh. But they don't really follow that up with anything except, you know, what we get in that same kind of confused... No, nothing that... Second half, die hard with a vengeance. Who's, the, you know, who's a villain? Who's the hero? Yeah. Double, triple crosses. Um... I mean, it's interesting. Speaking of like the of where of the like the geographical location of it, Bruce Willis takes that piece of information about traffic in the garden ring, and he uses it. He utilizes that <laughs> to the max. That saves his life like three or four times in this movie. <laughs> That's the genius cop part of him cropping up to you know the surface. Yeah, the traffic in the garden ring. Therefore, you are the villain. <laughs> yeah, he's got these moments where, uh, you know, uh, at the end, uh, you know, we're talking about the like he's deducing things because he can't find the dancing bad guy. Right. Where, where's the dancer? <laughs> um, the, can I just talk for a minute about the scene in which... Uh, just not that it matters, but the plot of this movie um, is basically that both John and John McClane Jr. are transporting a Russian dissident to what they think is safety because he has some piece of intelligence that the Americans need, whatever. But at a certain point in the movie, they realize that this guy is the bad guy who's, in, who's actually running everything. Uh -huh. And it totally flips around on itself. The scene where they find that out is the slowest recorded scene in Western cinema. <laughs> it seems like everyone in the scene has dementia. It goes so <laughs> slowly. At one point, one of them says, not so fast. I'm like, you could not get any slower. Right. You really technically, physically could not get any slower. It's as though all the accidents that John McClane has had has finally caught up to his brain. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like he's an old football player. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's, there's, once the movie, there's kind of nods here and there to the, to the franchise, like the villain eats a carrot. We remember Jeremy Irons has a hard boiled egg. Yeah. In, uh, in, when he's the villain. We think that they're terrorists and they're actually just out for the money. And so we get that. There's kind of like a sub level catchphrase in this movie, which is, so it was just about the money. It's like, mm -hmm. it's, close to yippee motherfucker in terms of how many times it's said in these movies. Right, right. And the, so... So there, there is... There, there, there's... Yeah. There, you, you, they're not ignoring the franchise. They're just ignoring the logic that underpins it, I think. Yeah, I, th I think you're right about that. There's... You know, it's like this movie tried to stand on its own with no legs. Yeah, yeah. With... Yeah, and... 
and no no brain. <laughs> right. The other thing that, and you know, just to finish up, one thing that really bothers me about this movie is the amount of CGI that you see at the end hmm. and how bad it is. Like that helicopter you mean, crash. You mean when they're falling down yeah, the there's, into the water? There, I, that's not as bad, but like the helicopter crash is clearly computer generated. Yeah. And then you have like a full front on shot of CGI Bruce Willis falling through a window. <laughs> and I just thought I, to I, myself. I want to do I want to uh, do a devil's advocate with you here because as you might suspect, I completely agree with you. Um, <laughs> but I just just to make things interesting. Now this this franchise as a whole has used a lot of green screen, a lot of digital imaging com, uh, com uh, what's the word? Composition. Um from like the, the the from Die Hard Two. So what's the is the difference just our nostalgia for it? Will we be looking back at that effect? Because they're comparable in terms of how artificial it looks. Oh, I don't know. I think it's done better in other movies. Is it done? But and, and again, this is debating skills. You know, devil's advocate. Uh-huh. Is it is it is it just our nostalgia? Will we be looking back on this lovingly and overlooking some of the anti-realism of it like the will we be doing this with the fighter jet no because there's a big difference for me the ejector seat in die hard 2 the the matte painting of the of the planes like i go oh isn't that isn't that cute look yeah. at them they didn't look they didn't know how to do this yet well so so you're talking about the end of die hard 2 with the paintings of planes with people moving around them and it does make you go well, what the fuck but, but like you said, in a kind of, oh, sort of way, you know, but put against that, I'll say when he kills that helicopter with the car in Live Free or Die Hard. Yeah. That's like eight different shots. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the you know, chopper being filmed somewhere, the car being filmed, the rotator blades of the helicopter, like the, the helicopter itself was held up by wires. In that shot. Okay. The the rotor for the helicopter was just CGI. But that's all put together to make you believe that happened in that moment. Guy jumped okay. off the helicopter. Like, it's just done better. In this movie, the helicopter crashes, and you could just see sort of animated fire, animated smoke. And you just think, oh, for fucking fuck's sake. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that was your defense, because uh, aside from, you know trying to provoke you into saying something like that. My actual note on the, that scene was, falling through the building into the water. Looks like they're in a cartoon. A completely artificial visual reality. <laughs> but I'm just kind of trying to question where those assumptions come from. That's fantastic. To see if we're being fair to this, to, fair to this movie and whether we, we give it 20 years will be yeah. going, oh, remember, remember when everything looked like a cartoon? I get that, like, this movie pisses you off enough throughout that by the end you're you're going to be less forgiving, maybe. Um, but honestly, I think, like, it deserves any admonishment it receives. It's How does it, sta- how does it stand up in the... Um, so, so each of these movies has a... Uh, like a piece of pop music, shall we say? 
Mm-hmm. Like a piece of signature pop music. This one is Doom and Gloom by the Rolling Stones, which, what do you think of that in relation to Credence and Love and Spoonful? So, so here's the funny part, like, when you first started talking about that, I was like, what song is in this movie? Like, it, everything about this movie is so forgetful that I forgot <laughs> that that song's in it. So that's well, I had to look, I had to look it up because it sounds like a a Rolling Stones song from the sixties, but it's actually contemporaneous. But it's a song. It's like the Rolling Stones trying to sound like, well, not sixties, maybe like early seventies Rolling Stones. Uh huh. Um, and I thought that was an interesting musical choice because it's like saying, you know, it's 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 in we we've kind of told a story with these pieces of music that we're. Um, you know, you know what? I think I think I've exhausted. Everything yeah, I was gonna to say, stop talking. Movie. I'm talking about I'm talking about the outro track. Just That's stop. <laughs> this movie doesn't deserve any kindness. Like, here's my last note. All right, we're gonna end this podcast on this last note, and we talked about it once before, but the very end of the movie, where the McLeans are brought back together, and nothing that you want to happen happens. Here's my note. Sunwalk. Boo. Right. That pretty much sums up everything about this movie. They're just walking through a sunset, and it's made to look like a golden moment, and all I'm thinking is, fucking boo. Yeah. And uh, here, here, oh, here's one, one last thing. Do, do they ever mention Nagasaki in this movie? Nakatomi, you mean? You keep saying Nagasaki. I keep saying, I keep saying Nagasaki, don't Get I? Get your I mean act Nakatomi. together, please. People died there. Mike, you're going to have to go Jesus. back and change every time I say <laughs> Nagasaki to Nagatomi. You're a terrible monster. Anyway. Um, Nagatomi Tower. Because there's a bit, there's a scene where the villain says, it's not 1986, you know. I mean, is that just bad screenwriting? And it's like, uh, when was Nagatomi? I don't know, 1986. Or is that the Cold War? What I does that know. mean? <laughs> That's another mark against this movie. Ugh. Okay. That was meant to defend oh, it. Well, okay. stop trying. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no way to defend this movie as far as I'm concerned. Tom seems to be on my same page despite all his best efforts. You can tell us what you think of A Good Day to Die Hard. Find us on Facebook or Instagram. Find us on Twitter. Uh, find us at the uh, Everything Sequel Podcast at Gmail. Send us an email. Tell us what you think. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Does the coronavirus have you feeling oogie? Have you been sitting on your couch for weeks? Nay, have you been sitting on there for months? Well, it's time for you to get back in shape. Check out To A T Fitness. You can find them on Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. To A T Fitness was started by Tina Bernard. She is ready and raring to go to help you get back into the shape you want to get into. They've got all kinds of classes. They've got outdoor in-person classes. They've got online classes if that's what you prefer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get back in shape. You're going to find a variety of exercises. You're going to have strength training, cardio, weightlifting, even fun five-minute burnouts that will push you to your limits. So get off the couch, get into shape. 
go ahead and check out Tua T Fitness. Tina Bernard has got you for all your needs. I know her personally. She's fantastic. You're not going to meet a better person to help you become the new you. Check it out.